What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have like a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. To this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. On this week's episode, we have the brilliant Shereen Ahmed, freelance sports writer in Toronto, Canada, Jessica Luther, independent writer, general slayer, and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football, and the Politics of Rape in Austin, Texas, and the whip smart Lindsay Gibbs, wordsmith at Think Progress in DC. And I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University. I want to take this time to remind our flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You can pledge a certain amount monthly, and in exchange for your monthly contribution, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, an opportunity to even throw one of your own awful things in sports on the burn pile. We send our deepest appreciation to those who have already contributed. On this week's show, we're going to talk about how the 2018 Winter Olympics are going, perhaps even about the Canadian hurling crisis. Shireen will interview (laughs) Afghanistan's women's national team coach, Kelly Lindsay. Then we'll switch gears to discuss the scam that is college athletics not paying its players. The, of course, the burn pile, the worst in sports, we'll, we'll have that and we'll celebrate some badass women who are changing the world. So before we get started, I want to ask about this how do I say it? I think, Shireen, you had a word for her. The half-assed pipe skier? Yeah. <laughs> yes. The half-assed half-pipe skier? <laughs> That's a thing. Have you guys been following her and her yes. SPs? <laughs> I mean, I've watched the video of her, like... 400 times, if that's what you mean by following. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your hot take on that, Jess? My crying, laughing tears would be my hot take on that. It's just, it's such a thing to watch. So for anyone who hasn't seen Elizabeth Sweeney, that's her name, right? She does the half pipe on skis and it's kind of like she goes up, it comes back. Like, it's just very basic is the word I would use. It's very basic. And the best part is if you find the video, the commentators take her really, really seriously, which like bless their hearts. Like they take her really seriously. And that just makes it all seem more surreal. So what are they saying? Because I haven't watched that much of it. Like, what are they saying? Are they like, and here she goes back down. They're like, her skill set is limited, things like that. And then at the very, my favorite is at the very end, she does like her final little swoop up and on her way down, flips backwards and, and then skis the little bit backwards. And he's like, oh, showing her full range of skills. It's just, it's really <laughs> something both like, it's surreal, but also sweet in a way. But she, she's just, 
her entire story well, is so strange. <laughs> I, I, so, okay, so I was reading this Yahoo piece on her, and they did like a really, it was actually really interesting. They did a very sincere interview with her and talk about her. And it turns out that she is just the most like earnest person in the world. Like she's not this jerk that's like trying to like, just this rich, rich jerk. She's just this super earnest person who is always dreamed of being in the Olympics and just kind of made it happen in her own way. It was kind of a sweet article. Like I came away from it feeling a lot of love for her. And I did not feel that beforehand because she just really didn't see everyone laughing at her or it didn't bother her. She just wanted to ski in the Olympics. And this is how she made it happen. She worked like four jobs in order to do this. Sorry. Sorry. Um, <laughs> we can still laugh. My, my, my <laughs> I think thing. it's really interesting. I think it's really interesting. My, and I think it's earnest that, Lindsay, you read a whole interview and an article well, on it. Y'all like, <laughs> I did, I did, I did. Shereen, you want to jump in? Yeah, the thing is, is that I'm. my sort of opinion is twofold. One, she's completely kept my Olympic dreams alive. Like if she can actually do that, I'm not that bad of a skier considering if, you know, so she's making me think, you know what, I can go to the Olympics, which I completely can't. But the other flip side, and Lindsay, I didn't read the article that you're talking about, but I, I do want to, is the idea of when we talk about what it takes to get there, a lot of it is money. And I, I she is actually a rich kid who has the facility and the resource to make it there when there's other people that are completely struggling. Like, so I can't shake that. Like, I'm sure she's earnest and she's probably lovely and she's probably so passionate about skiing, but I can't help but be a little bit jaded about the whole thing because of the stories we hear of the athletes that struggle year day in and day out to actually make it there. And it's almost like she waltzed in. But she didn't. She, 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 she the raised all this money and worked all these small jobs to raise all this money oh, to, okay. to go okay. and travel to these competitions. I mean, I'm not saying she might have come from a place oh, of privilege okay. and I'm sure she comes from a place of much more privilege than a lot of people but i've read stories about rich people basically just buying their way into the olympics and that did not this didn't seem like that exactly this this seemed a little bit different although i want to be clear we can still all laugh at it (laughs) (laughs) well yeah it's it's silly and i just want to add like to her credit, I could never ski yeah. as well as she does. So I just want to leave that out there. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a perfect segue to our first segment. The Olympics in Pyeongchang have trained through another week, chugging along and brought all kinds of fascinating stories. Shireen, do you want to give us a, a highlight? Yeah, I initially thought about coming into this and, you know, came in with a lot of swag and, you know, sort of smack talk about my hockey team. And this is my, it's not a mea culpa. It's not exactly me eating humble pie. It's a little bit. Maybe it's not, it's not that just because first of all, you three are lovely. You were lovely and that would never have me subjugated to any type of national shame, even though we also lost in men's curling and what the fuck. (laughs) Anyways, I'll deal I will deal with my identity crisis later, but just revel in the fact that we have strict gun control and universal health care. Yes, I went there. 
Now, the thing is, the the closing ceremonies are actually, we record Sunday morning, and they're happening right now, or they've just finished. And Jesse Diggins, uh, American Golden Girl, surprise gold medalist, is a flag bearer. Kim Boutin from Canada is three-time medalist, is a flag bearer. And, you know, I think it's it's very exciting. Everyone loves this Parade of Nations and the closing ceremonies. It's a little more casual. The end of the Olympics saw Norway completely slaying with 39 medals overall, Germany with 31, Canada with 29, and then U.S. six behind Canada with 23. And I think that that was, uh, it's just been really incredible. Like there's been a lot of joy. This quickly, Kim Boutin, the the, uh, Canadian flag bearer, she was not uh, selected as that because she kind of went through a bit of a drama when she won bronze, beating out a South Korean speed skater. She was actually given death threats and because she won so her joy was short-lived and they took the threats quite seriously so just as a support why was she given death threats because she beat out a south korean athlete and and what happened was angry fans felt that there was something called quote-unquote interfering that and it wasn't judged properly and that she shouldn't have got that although her race it went over review it was you know it was clean she won medals in two other in two other events competitions and she's fine but it was it really rattled her, obviously, because, you know, you're you're there, you're giving your heart out. And then this happens, especially with a home crowd. And that's not what you want. I mean, most Olympians talk about the love they feel from the crowds that are there. So that was that was really unsettling. So sort of I think it was a wonderful gesture that she was given the opportunity to be the flag bearer. Then, I mean, we could do a whole, a whole episode on Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer. We just love them. The ice <laughs> yeah, dancing couple. They, yes. did, they did a piece to uh, the tragically hip Gord Downey, Canada's beloved national poet who passed away last year. They did a, a piece to long time running one of his most famous songs. And that everybody just cried. The whole country just cried. That was in the gala. Um, that at was the in end. the gala. Yeah. yeah. And it was just sort of, a, it wasn't for judging. It was just literally just a showcase. And it was beautiful. And, 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 and it was very, it was very, very personal for the country and sort of a nod. Another thing that I think everybody loves, and we've talked about this, is South Korean team that scored silver that went they call themselves team kim because every player on the team the women's team the south korean team is their last name is kim so they call it team kim and there's this beautiful beautiful quote that i got from their coach peter gallant who is a canadian and has been working with the team and he said two years ago this team didn't believe they were good enough to win a game and this week they believed they were the best in the world Aww. and that I'm like tearing up. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's just these beautiful, beautiful athletes are coming, and it's not a f- big sport in South Korea. In fact, one of my favorite things about the Olympics is watching the world fall in love with curling, and nobody thinking I'm absolutely off my rocker for loving this sport. And it's riveting. It's really a riveting sport, and seeing folks. And I really hope this continues this this love for curling continues and and goes on and people support their teams locally and and nationally just well, the united talk- states is a curling country now so yes. we're all good because yes. we, won, <laughs> we won gold so beat canada you did. so you did. I'm, and, and, uh, it's now our national sport so that's I mean, <laughs> yeah absolutely and i think that's that's really important particularly the way that it was done i mean even the players themselves were extremely the american men were elated they couldn't believe that they'd knock canada out and 
Canada couldn't believe that we're knocked out. But <laughs> just, just the fact that the humility from those players was really important. And I think that's something that really can really touch us. I'm absolutely going to talk about the women's hockey game. It was, you know, unbelievable. The amount of players in Canada alone, the stats were 3.7 million were watching. And keep in mind, this game started at 11, 10 p.m. at night, Eastern yes, Standard Time. So, and half yes, the world, and it did, and it went into shootouts, which is the first set that we'd ever seen in a, in a hockey final, which the IIHF has said that will now be implemented. Like that, so it won't go into extra time like they do in, in, in the NHL and Stanley Cup playoffs. It will come down, and there's a lot of debate about this, whether, you know, the putting the medal and the, the gold medal on a series of breakaways is actually fair. But I think Shannon Zabados, who's the Canadian goalie, who was actually given the title for goalie of the entire tournament, it showcases their skill too. And it's, it's part of the game. And that's the reality. I can't say I wasn't heartbroken. I think I was more upset about Canada losing than it was about my divorce, but that's okay because, you know, this is our game. This is our thing. And it's part of the process. And, I keep reading stories about the Canadian women's reactions as well and how this is our Stanley Cup. And this gets back to talking about women's hockey in general, the NWHL, CWHL, the women don't have the the Olympic, the Olympic final is really their culmination and it's only once every four years. So this is a really big deal. And, you know, Jocelyn Larocque, there was this big thing about her removing the silver medal for which she later issued a statement and apologized and she took it off after she was given the medal and there was a big fuss about that. I have my own opinions. But anyway, that's just a summary. And I absolutely have to give props to the Americans. You know, usually, you know, you, you quietly and hustled and really, really came up front and following in the footsteps of the superior Canada in many ways has been beneficial for you. So that's something so amazing about I love you so much and even more that you just will not concede anything to us. That's okay. We got two gold medals. Okay, back to back. Don't don't come at me. We were supposed to talk about this earlier this week and Shireen literally sent us a message not talking about this. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you're not getting away with this that this easily, Shireen. But the the American women, I actually said to a friend of mine here, David Rudin, who's a who's a dedicated listener. I said to him, "I'm very nervous when Canada beat U.S. in the pool play." I said, "This isn't good," and I was nervous then because yeah. you don't women American women's hockey is incredible. They are tenacious, and the like. Lindsay, your piece was amazing about them and their fight for pay equity and and recognition and support. You don't do that. And I was nervous going into the final because I said they will be motivated so well, much. Well, the thing that is, I mean, so the U.S. team has beaten Canada in seven of the last 10, I think, world championships. Yeah, It had yeah. just been at the Olympics that they hadn't been able to get past Canada again. It seemed every Olympics, Canada got the best of them. So I think it was important for many reasons for the U.S. to win this. I think it helps their rivalry on a bigger stage for both teams. And I think it just fuels the fire more. I mean, it was was an incredible game. The physicality, the intensity, the there were there were so many shots, so many moments I was holding my breath and Jocelyn Lamoureux Davidson's goal <laughs> in the shootout that mm-hmm. ended up clinching it was one of the most beautiful hockey shootout goals I've ever seen. It was gorgeous, stunning. I just want to like 
I want to figure out how to frame like a GIF of it. Like, I don't know how to do that. But if somebody could tell me, that would be wonderful. It was so incredible. And, you know, like Shireen mentioned, this U.S. team a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, decided they were going to boycott the world championships, which were being held in the United States, because they were only receiving $6,000 every four years. every four years for playing on the national team. And they had been trying to get USA Hockey to give them a better contract for basically since 1998, since they won their first gold medal in the Olympics and until this year, their last. They The boycott was so impressive. They made sure that every single person up and down the USA pipeline was in on this. The USA hockey ended up calling scabs. We're talking high schoolers in some cases, you know, elite level high schoolers, college players, people who would never have a chance to play in the world championships. And every single one of them said, no, I'm not crossing this picket line because they believed that securing this contract was what was needed for the future of USA hockey. And they finally ended up reaching a contract two days before the world championships began. Up to this point, USA Hockey, like the women had not even gone to the training camp. They were standing firm for their boycott. At this point now, they've earned, they're making $70,000 a year plus bonuses for Olympic medals and things of the like. They're getting training stipends. There's funds now devoted completely to developing and marketing the girls and women's hockey game. And They also have travel accommodations that are on par with our men's team. In other words, they are allowed to bring a guest, USA Hockey comps a guest for them for travel for when they travel to competitions, which they did not before. If the men are traveling in first class, the women have to travel first class. And that's just the rule from now on. And that's incredible. And so it was really meaningful to see them come together for that and then to see them be able to earn this gold medal that I know they all wanted so bad. If you talk to any member of that team, they said since so because they blew a lead in Sochi in the gold medal game. And most of them said they replayed that every single day for the past four years. Every night before they went to bed, they thought about that game. Jeez, no mm. no baggage there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I think just to go back to what Lindsay was saying about calling up the high schoolers, I remember that because I was so – the amount of solidarity the hockey players at every level were showing the national team was incredible. For me, it was really profound. And at a level even beyond U.S. women's soccer, when that happened with them, their struggle for equity because women's hockey in Canada is not as popular as soccer is. And uh, sorry, in the United States, not in Canada. So I think that was that was really significant that the younger girls, the high school girls, the college girls were like, we're not going to go up. We're going to stand in for our heroes and for sheroes. And the whole thing is, I love women's hockey. I do God. too. I, uh, Jess? Yeah, I just wanted to add really quickly that this is a really good example of what happens when a media like an NBC puts their force behind women's sport. Like from the jump of the Olympics, they said that this was the rivalry. This was the rivalry of the Olympics, USA and Canada and women's hockey. And people cared about it because, I mean, people already cared, but it does matter when the media gets behind it and and uses their hype to make it even bigger. And it was really exciting to see how many people cared so deeply about this game. And then the women showed up and they were on both sides, just spectacular. And that as a fan of women's sport, all of that was just really, really fun to see. 
just one last thing we're talking about this is that I just really want to encourage our listeners out there, go support the CWHL, go support the NWHL. This type of brilliant hockey doesn't only occur every four years. It happens every year at the World Championships. It happens in your local leagues. Like support. And if you don't live close to a team, that in the United States or Canada, you can still support them financially, you can support them on social media. These are these are some of the most brilliant athletes in the world and they're here. So let's please, 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 the takeaway is please support women's hockey. Shireen, do you want to intro your interview? Yes, thanks. I had a really great time talking to Kelly Lindsay, who's actually a retired U.S. national soccer player, and she's currently coaching the U.S., uh, sorry, the Afghan women's national soccer team. Today, I'm so excited to have Kelly Lindsay, former U.S. women's national soccer team player who is now coaching the Afghan women's national football team. She's right now in Chicago. And also I have on the line from Copenhagen, Kala the Popal, who is an activist, a footballer and a student. And she has dedicated her life to elevating the game and elevating the beautiful women's game and being a supporter and advocate for women in Afghanistan. So thank you both for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Just before we started this conversation, the two of you were so excited to know that you'd be on the line with each other. (laughs) And there's this friendship and sisterhood and camaraderie. Can you tell me how that came? Because like Kelly... Where did you come from and how did you get involved with, I mean, Afghan women's football? Like, can you just give us a little bit of background on how that happened? I don't even really know. No, (laughs) I actually met a few of the players over the years working for the Julie Foudy Sports Leadership Academy. And the last academy I worked at in 2015, I believe, I met Hajar, who was the current captain of the Afghan women's national team. And after hearing the story of the team and how it was created and where they were at and, you know, the challenges and the drama and the lack of support, all I wanted to do was, was help and support the team in some way. I wasn't sure exactly how. And I quickly moved to Hong Kong after I met her and I noticed that the team went on a trip to Japan. So my first thought was, well, I don't know that I could really help them being in the U.S., but now that I'm living in Asia, maybe I could bring them to Hong Kong and provide a safe place for them to train, provide them, you know, a different point of view from a coaching or sports leadership, just support the team in whatever way them and the federation wanted. So I reached out to the federation and started the conversation of just trying to host a camp for them and fundraising for them and paying for the camp and taking care of them when they came to Hong Kong. And about a year later, Kalita came into my life, gave me a call, said, I heard you're trying to help the team. We hit it off right away when I heard her story. We just sort of decided um, it was time to do something serious for this team. And we discussed a lot of options. And she asked me if I'd be willing to step in and, and coach and lead. And we started this crazy journey where we started traveling the world trying to find players <laughs> and building camps and fundraising. And that's led us to where we are today. <laughs> So Khalida, I've read, in fact, there's this, my friend Stephanie Yang did a beautiful piece about you and your story for Unusual Efforts, which we will link to the show, and just your story about how, you know, how much you love football. And, you know, you were a refugee, you're a refugee to, to Denmark, and how much that football was an inherent part of your life. 
and how you are now using your platform to talk about gender equality and sport in Afghanistan. And I just, what was it like for you to find that Kelly was doing this work? Like, what was that moment like for you? Well, as Kelly said to me, I just explained before how actually we contacted her. Well, I mean, when I left Afghanistan, I was uh, the captain and also the leader of Women's Football Committee. But then things changed in my life. I had to leave my country and then I skipped to to Denmark and seek asylum. And uh, I was away for almost one one year from from all activities that was with Afghanistan Women's National Team and Afghanistan Women's Football. So the team almost did and the team like didn't have almost no activities. So my uh, former players in Afghanistan requested me to to help them to coordinate some of the programs. And then um, we started planning and then I was actually searching for, I mean, a strong team to build the uh, the national team from from the scratch to have a strong national team new strong national team with the mix of the players from coming from Afghanistan and outside Afghanistan because I wanted to to give an opportunity for the w- women who lives outside Afghanistan who are immigrants and refugees myself who actually who had a lot of dreams but still have a lot of dreams to do something for their country to give them opportunity to do or to give back to their country so i was searching for a strong team who can help me to build this and i heard the about kaylee and then i was searching for her contact so but then i found it and i didn't know really a lot about her because she wasn't social media queen and i didn't <laughs> find her anywhere so i was searching for her so i was like how oh, man how i can find her because she's not active in social media she doesn't have like any account there so finally i found her and then i we had talk and then i said to her like I really want you to to join the team and this is how actually the situation we don't have money we don't have support we have almost nothing but are you willing to to join and help us and it of course it was not I was not expecting that she will say yes because I said oh my god we have a lot of challenge we actually don't have any team like the team was totally deactive we were searching for players we were searching for stuff we were searching for money i mean we didn't have anything and when she said yes and i was like no man it's a dream come true <laughs> and then from there we started together we started campaigns we started um, recruiting the players and all everything actually changed and uh, it was very fast we could manage to have a, a great team of course, there's a lot of challenges. Uh, I'm still so surprised at how I mean, it's, I, I know how it is for a coach to coach a team that is so much drama, so much problem, so much like, I mean, no, no support from, from their countries, from their federation, from even most of women's, from most of women's from Afghanistan. I mean, we don't talk about men, but even the women are against so there's a lot of challenges, but I'm really, really happy and I feel so proud that I could manage to, to find these great people who wants to volunteer work for my country, for the, for, for the women in my country, that they want to empower the, those women.
to help them to come their dreams come true. So this is so amazing that I'm I'm really proud to have them, especially Kaylee. She's a role model for me, and I really admire her work and her leadership. I have since we know each other, and I have learned a lot. That that's really important. There's two things I wanted to ask, and you're talking about, and I think it's really important that you do say it's not just sort of men that are preventative. Sometimes, very often, rather, women are actually objecting to this in, in whatever way. And the fact that you're out there and you're still continuing to do it despite threats, despite situations in Afghanistan that you're still, you know, pushing and and encouraging other young women to get involved. I think this is it's incredible. But also on the comment about federations aren't. I think this is a really important point you're making. And Afghanistan is not the only federation in the world where the federation is actually not helping the women at all. In fact, it's, it happens so often. But just very recently, the team was invited to Jordan to play. So do you find, you know, unlikely support in places? And, and, and I mean, the games were, I mean, the, te- the team didn't win, but that exposure and that opportunity to play at that level is really important. So have you found a lot of support like that? Either one of you, Kelly or Khalida, you can you can answer this. Well, I think that I can start. I think that's the beautiful game of football because really how it all got developed was below the federation. It was I've known Mike for many years. We connected when he went to Jordan. We've talked about his journey of being there. We've talked about my journey of being with Afghanistan. We've compared how do you build these teams? How do you build these countries? And we really took the year of 2017 as a relationship building year. I mean, I didn't have that many contacts across Asia and the Middle East. Most of my contacts were in Europe and the Americas. So it took a little bit of time to start connecting. But all of our camps that are going to happen this year are really from coaches who reached out to each other and said, we got to help each other out. And then we went back to our federations and we worked out the details. And I give the Jordan Federation a lot of credit. They've really stepped up. They're really trying to do something different for women's football. They also have a long way to go, but you got to start somewhere. And the fact that their president, you know, set up the U-17 World Cup, um, the Asia qualifications. I mean, these are huge events in their country that will start to change the foundation of women's football there and start to show people that there's hope, there's belief, there's a country that's supporting it. So whether or not the federations fully support us all, I think that's what what's really beautiful about our story right now is the coaches and the people on the ground saying, let's make this happen. Let's just find a way to make it happen together and help each other out. And I give uh, AFC a lot of credit. I give the J- Japan Football Association a lot of credit. They hosted a women's coaching course last year where I met a lot of contacts and that's how we kind of spread the word. So it's, you know, football breaks all barriers and all languages and we all want to help the women and it just takes people getting on the ground and doing the dirty work. So just on that note, you both talked about challenges at different levels, societal, you know, the federation. What about the technical stuff? Like I'm a footballer too. So Kelly, you know, Khaled is obviously his captain and is more skilled. What was that like to take the variations of different skill level and bring it up to that level? Like what's that like, particularly when the players are not actually in one place? Like I read this a really great article on BBC which we'll also link to the show notes, and talking about how you send packages and training instructional videos so that everyone is on point technically with game IQ and stuff. Like, that must be an impossible task as a coach, like to manage those different levels of skill. And how do you how do, you do that? 
a lot of work behind the scenes and a lot of patience. I give our girls actually a lot of credit for that because they have to do the work on their end. I mean, no matter what we send them, they have to go out and do it. And I think the one thing that I've really noticed from this group of women, it's always changing. The girls that come through camp every time are always a little bit different. We don't have just a core team that is always there because they're all in completely different parts of their life, different countries, different areas. So it's hard to always get the timing perfect with school or with other competitions or with family affairs, whatever the case might be. But what I've really seen, especially in Kabul and in Afghanistan, is the girls who come into camp, they see what training should be like at the international level. And I think they could admit and we would be very honest that, yeah, their technical ability is not there. But the only way to get it there is to teach them and show them and break the game down so that they can go back and practice it. And so I give our entire team credit that they're patient, they're understanding. We can say there's two or three distinct levels of play, but we all got to figure it out together. And the fact that they go back to Kabul and they train on their own and they bring the next group that comes in are at a little bit higher technical level, a little bit higher technical level gives me a lot of hope. Khalido, for you, just to, as we wrap up the interview, what is, would be your message to young girls all over the world? Not just in Afghanistan, because you're a role model for so many, for many different reasons. What's your advice to them if they want to pursue football? The first thing I would say is that we have to support each other. Women have to start supporting each other. If women don't push each other up and support each other, we will never be successful in our lives, in our career, in nothing. We have to help each other. We have to be united as a women to, 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 to fight for our goal to, to stand for, together for women's rights. In order to play football and playing football is, is a game, is a united game, it's a group game. And you have to be mentally united physically together to achieve the goal. So being united is the first thing that they, the girls has to learn. They should support each other and not stand against each other because at the end of the day nobody will be the winner that's awesome thank you so much uh, Kelly Khalida for coming and on Burn It All Down and your story is amazing and we wish you all the best if there's anything we can do to support and amplify you know where can we find more information about your project your initiative and the team I will send you the inform, uh, the link of our website so you can actually follow there Thank you so much for interviewing us. <laughs> no problem. It was a pleasure. And I would, you know, a dream of mine would be to come and watch you play and to kick a ball around and you both can can teach me some stuff. That would be amazing. I mean, you, you both are just phenomenal and much love and respect to the entire team. You are welcome anytime to come <laughs> join us. <laughs> Thanks so much, ladies. For our next segment, we'd like to do a little discussion on NCAA violations and paying players or not paying players. Jess, you want to start us off? Yeah, I'm here to blow your minds. Did you all know that top basketball (laughs) programs pay money under the table to some of their players? It's hard to believe. I know, I know. So I'm going to I'm going to back up a little bit. In September, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York laid out findings from an FBI investigation that uncovered mass corruption, bribery and wire fraud in some of college basketball's top programs. The investigation includes wiretaps, surveillance video, undercover agents and cooperating witnesses. 
Federal agents executed search warrants at the offices of ASM Sports, which represents 30 current NBA players. That led to the arrests of four assistant coaches from Auburn, Oklahoma State, Arizona, and USC, all accused of taking bribes from Christian Dawkins, a former recruiter at ASM. And I mentioned Dawkins specifically because he's important to this. Also arrested was James Gatto, director of global sports marketing for Adidas. The scheme, if you want to call it that, was that the high schooler, high school basketball players would go to the colleges sponsored by Adidas. They'd sign with Dawkins, who would get a lot of money when the players joined the NBA, and then, and then those players would ink a sponsorship deal with Adidas when they went pro. This is why they're doing all this. Okay, so that leads us to last week when Yahoo published a report based on documents and bank records obtained in discovery during the federal investigation. These include the expenditures of prominent former NBA agent Andy Miller, his associate Dawkins, and the agency ASM Sports. The list of schools implicated is simply too long to read off here, but it includes Alabama, Duke, Kentucky, LSU, Maryland, Michigan State, NC State, North Carolina, Seton Hall, Texas, USC, and Washington. Whew. Okay. So I'll just say at this point, it's really hard for me to care about this because <laughs> we're supposed to get upset, I guess, over stuff like Dennis Smith, who played at NC State, getting $43,500, or that Mark- Markel Fultz, who played at Washington and was last year's number one draft pick, got $10,000. Former Wichita State player Fred Van Fleet received at least $1,000, and current Texas player Eric Davis got a whopping, hold on to your hats, $1,500, apparently. ESPN has separately reported that Sean Miller, the head coach at Arizona, who makes over $2 million a year, discussed with Dawkins of ASM Sports, paying $100,000 to freshman DeAndre Ayton in order to get Ayton to commit to playing at Arizona. Who cares? I mean, the NCAA, a nonprofit organization, generates about one... <laughs> Sorry, that was a funny joke. Uh, a it generates about $1 billion, with a B, as in boy, in revenue annually, right? Most of that money comes from television and marketing rights during the Division I men's basketball tournament. They make nearly $800 million. And then they get ticket sales from various NCAA championships at just over $123 million that way. Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, who makes nearly $2 million in salary annually, gave Yahoo a statement that read in part, quote, these allegations, if true, point to systemic failures that must be fixed and fixed now if we want college sports in America. Simply put, people who engage in this kind of behavior have no place in college sports. They are an affront to all those who play by the rules. Oh, my gosh. So that's where we are now. Next month is March Madness. My hope is that this ends amateurism for good. I think the NCAA is going to have to choose, really, between fining and punishing a whole host of top teams and coaches, or finally relinquishing some of its bags of gold to the players it has been making money off of this whole time. But really, is it too much to hope that the NCAA is destroyed altogether by this? What are you guys thinking at this point? <laughs> I I'm grossed out, as always. I feel like dirty and I need a shower just hearing (laughs) that kind of hypocrisy. I mean, think about the kids looking at their coaches and what their coaches make. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, part of it is the inflation of these top program salaries, too, because you see the revenue that's being generated and then it's thrown in their face in a very real way. And how would you on earth expect these kids not to be able or not to want to have some of that. It's just, it's just shocking to me. And I don't understand why it can't be like work study. 
we have students all the time making money while they're in school, you know? So I, I don't understand why they can't fall under that category, except that the NCAA has no other real purpose than scamming right. student athletes. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, part of like reading the Yahoo report, like when I when I saw it and I opened it and I started reading down and there's literally bullet points in there of these examples. And when I got to the ones that were, I mean, there's a point when they said, because Dawkins has an expenditure report or something like that. And it's like took $400 out of the ATM for so-and-so's mom. And I was like, really? This is like what we're upset about this? This is the thing, the $400 ATM expenditure versus the millions, almost billion dollars that they're making off the backs of these kids. And as I've said before on this program, you know, there's really good evidence that a lot of these guys aren't even getting very good educations out of this, right? We've talked about UNC before and all of their academic scandal and the way that these schools set up you know, sham degrees, basically, for these guys, they they don't even care enough about them to teach them at these schools. And now we're supposed to get upset that like, they want a tiny piece of the gigantic money pie. I, oh, God, it just breaks my heart that this is how it is. And, and that it works that people actually get upset that they're these players are getting paid at all. And it's just I have a question. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Shane. Sorry. Sorry, I have a question just about where do the endorsements come into play? Like, are companies, Adidas, Under Armour, whatever, are they allowed to actually have college athletes be sponsored? Are they allowed to amp their products? Because those teams get a lot of free gear depending on who sponsors them. What's the line there? Like, I mean, I'm, I, I don't think it know. has to do, Lindsay might be able to answer this too, but I think it has to do with the school can have endorsements, but the individual players cannot. And so part of this whole thing is that, like, the idea is that Adidas is getting these kids to agree that one day, if and when they go pro, at that point, they'll sign on with Adidas. But the schools themselves, their departments are actually sponsored by Adidas. And we see this all the time. I think it's like Michigan might be sponsored by Nike. And they recently agreed to, you know, Michigan agreed to hand over the bio data of their players to Nike because of this deal where Nike's going to pay the school $160 million or something like that. So I think it's a school to the school gets endorsements. But the kids get nothing, right? Like the kids get they nothing. They get an education and they get some swag. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how much beyond that it's they get. It's just a contract okay. with the university. They can't get direct payment from those places for sure. Yeah. Um, Linz, did you want to add here? Yeah. One of the stats of the many stats that are ridiculous in this, but this really proves what a fraud this whole thing is. Sean Miller, who is a coach at Arizona, who they found FBI wiretaps, apparently found him offering $100,000 to a player. And he there's now, is he going to still have a job? He didn't coach the game last night. There's all this drama because he's a very high profile coach. But then an ESPN report came out that if Sean Miller is fired, (laughs) he actually gets more for getting fired with cause than without cause. So if he's fired with cause... Oh my, God. Oh my gosh. Be owed $5 million more than if he was fired without cause. Just let that settle in. Oh so this guy God. could make double oh. if he gets fired for breaking these rules that are ridiculous anyways. Meanwhile, these athletes still get nothing. And it's amazing because now the U.S. taxpayers are not only bankrolling some of the largest salaries in each state, but they're also funding FBI investigations. 
literally, I mean, the public is being asked to do all of this incredible work for these private companies to maintain this veneer of, you know, amateurism. And I just want to pause a little bit on that bio data that Jess was talking about. That, I mean, that is disgusting. What yeah, can you explain a little more? Here. Yeah, no, it's all disgusting. But the bio data seems like a new disgusting twist to me. Yeah. So, but aren't there aren't there rules about confidentiality <laughs> in terms of when they work with doctors and stuff like this? Like, I just I, I can't even believe this is yeah, legal. Yeah. So, I mean, it's complicated right now, and it's not clear like how it's going to work out. But yeah, there was a New York Times report in 2016, and as part of that, this I'm just going to quote the New York Times: Nike paid Michigan what 100. $70 million. And it says, quote, a clause in the contract could in the future allow Nike to harvest personal data from Michigan athletes through the use of wearable technology like heart rate monitors, GPS trackers, and other devices that log myriad biological activities. And I'll say like, this is a complicated thing. Athletes really like to know a lot of this stuff, right? It helps them be better athletes. But the idea that they're going to hand over this kind of information to Nike for all this money and you know, again, that these young men aren't getting anything out of this. And it could impact, you know, your draft prospects. What if those guys get a handle on your data and decide it's a reason you shouldn't be drafted or something like that? Who knows? It's just it's a very slippery slope, one that makes me very nervous. So yeah. Friends? Yeah, I just want to make sure we don't forget to mention how racist this all is. And that if these these were primarily black men and in some cases, women for the women's sports, which are involved in this, though not as extremely. But, you know, we wouldn't be having this argument. We wouldn't be having this. This would have been fixed a long time ago. Sean King actually reported for The Intercept this week. He looked into one of the amateurism cases, legal cases, where the NCAA is defending amateurism and found out that one of the reasons, one of the statutes that they are using in their case law to argue why it's okay to not pay athletes is parts of the 13th Amendment, which allows unpaid prison labor. So it's wow. a bit convoluted, and I will link the Intercept article because the exact legal legalese here is a stretch. But it's just if there's anything that kind of really stresses how much this is another form of exploitation of Black bodies, that is it in plain writing. And they know it. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, they're they're well well aware. aware. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there was a wonderful Reddit by Victoria Jackson in the Los Angeles Times that said NCAA sports are the new Jim Crow. And she had this great quote just to, I think it'd be perfect to end on where she says, non-revenue athletes are mostly white, while revenue sport athletes are disproportionately black. This college sports system contributes to the undervaluing of black lives in American society and our institutions. The predominantly white privilege of playing college sports while earning a quality degree comes at the expense of, is literally paid for by the educationally unequal experiences of mostly black football and basketball players. So this is the segment where we throw everything we've hated this week about sports, patriarchy, and racism on the burn pile. Lindsay, do you want to start us off? 
I would love to. So this burn pile item actually comes courtesy of reporting from our very own Jessica Luther, who teamed up with a great John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated for an investigation into the culture of harassment and sexual misconduct by the NBA's Dallas Mavericks employees. This is it's important to note that this is not the players or the coaches. These are these are employees within the front office of the organization, which is where this uh, harassment is said to have happened. There is a lot to unpack here, and you should definitely read the entire investigation because I can't do it justice in a minute. But the main takeaway is that the former president and CEO of the Mavs, he multiple current and former female Mavs employees have said that he harassed them. Among other things and conversations, he told one of these employees that she was quote, going to get gang banged that weekend, just in casual conversation. He said that one other woman has other women, excuse me, not one other woman, other multiple women have accused this former CEO of repeatedly inappropriately touching them and propositioning them for sex. And one of those women says she reported this to HR countless times. There's also the case of Earl Sneed, who became a full-time beat reporter for Mavs.com. So he was covering the team for their own website, which is a weird arrangement, but not an uncommon one in professional sports. During the 2010 to 2011 season, Sneed was involved in a domestic dispute with his girlfriend that's extremely disturbing. He threatened her, fractured her wrist, bruised her arms, the police were called, and he pled guilty to misdemeanor charges. He kept his job after all of this. And then in 2014, Sneed hit a coworker who he was dating. That woman told the HR and her supervisor, but once again, he still kept his job. He wasn't fired until Monday, right when this report came out. So there's a lot to, to talk about here. And, you know, I think we probably will get into this more later on in this show is, is that more reporting comes out. And thank you so much, Jessica, for bringing this to light. But first of all, this is just another example when people ask me, why don't more women work in sports or just suck it up or just speak up when something bad happens to you, then nothing bad will happen to you. This is yet another case that proves why women don't feel safe in these environments, why we don't feel safe speaking up, and why this is just a culture that continuously puts women down and lifts up these men under the guise of masculinity and athletics and money and power. It's gross. I The NBA is launching an internal investigation. They seem to be setting up hotlines to deal with things like this in the future. I think we have reason to believe that the NBA might make significant steps here, although we always should be hesitant to really believe in any of these organizations. But this is gross. We need to burn down cultures like this and men who continuously not only harass female employees, but men and women who cover up for them. Burn. Burn. That's amazing work, Jessica. We're also proud of you yeah. and impressed. Shireen? What do you want to burn? My burn isn't related to actually my interview with uh, Kelly Lindsay. It's about something that the um, Afghan national women's team experienced while they were playing a series of friendly matches in Jordan. Jordan invited the uh, Afghan women's team to go and play, which I think is really important because, you know, it gives them some exposure. And the women on this team, and we'll find out in the interview more, as you've heard, they live all over the place. Like they live, they're from the Afghan diaspora and they're all over the place. So they 
they don't actually get to train regularly together as you would think. Now, my problem with what happened was that they played, and one of the reasons I love the visual, the optics of them playing is because some choose to wear a scarf, many don't. Some wear shorts, some wear tights underneath their shorts, some wear pants. But the idea for me that is so critical, particularly around Muslim women's bodies, is that they choose themselves. I'm a firm proponent of women choosing what they wear, whatever, what's safe for them. And choice for me is optimal, even within a spiritual context. And now the thing is, is that the president of the Afghan Football Association came out and actually made a statement that he was embarrassed that some of the women on the Jordanian team did cover. Not all of them do fully. Not all of them do. Some do. But then the Afghan women, they didn't. And that really bothered me because the issue wasn't about that and it shouldn't be about that. And y'all know my position on what men say about what women wear. Like, there's no place for it. It shouldn't be an issue. That's exactly my perspective on this. It was really problematic. And I mean, this is a president of the Football Federation saying this. I don't think it's okay. So I'm really angry about that. I don't ever want, I want men who are listening to understand that the best time for you to talk about what women wear is actually never. <laughs> so th- that's important along sports lines or societal lines, especially this, especially when this is a team that's in the margins. These are players in the margins. And I, I just have no time for it. And I'll be happy to say that Muslim men come at me like just no, I'm going to burn it. Burn. Burn. Jess? Yeah, so low hanging fruit here this week, but I want to throw Ray Carruth onto the burn pile. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah. So, Carruth, for those who don't know, he's a former Carolina Panther receiver who was convicted in 2001 of ordering a hit on the mother of his son. Her name was Cherica Adams, and she was seven months pregnant at the time. Carruth didn't want the child born, he didn't want to have to pay child support for him. Adams died, but her son did not. Chancellor Adams, now 18, was hurt in utero by the trauma on his mother's body and has cerebral palsy. His grandmother, Sandra Adams, has raised him. Later this year, in October, Carruth is scheduled to be released from prison. He has recently sent a 15-page letter to a local Charlotte TV station. It was an open letter to Sandra Adams. He sent it to the media because Adams never responds to him. He then called the station and over the phone said to them, quote, I feel like if I did it in the open... It would put an end to the lies. If I say publicly, Miss Adams, I apologize. Miss Adams, I take responsibility for what happened. That she could no longer get on television and do an interview and say, Ray has never apologized to me. He seems nice. Anyway, in the letter, <laughs> Caruth wrote, quote, I should be raising my son. His mother should be raising her son. Miss Adams should not be doing this. And I want that responsibility back. I feel like he might not ever have his mother in his life, but he could still have me and I could still make a difference. And I don't think that's anyone's responsibility when I'm still here. He does thank Adams for caring for his son and he takes responsibility for it all. And according to WBTV, the station, Adams is open to Caruth and Chancellor having a relationship. But my God, it's very hard not to see Caruth going to the media as a move to force Adam's hand, as him trying to control the situation in whatever way he can, as an attempt at a yet un- unearned public redemption. Who can blame Adams for the radio silence? It's not her job to ease Caruth's way back into his child's life. Everything about the situation is horrible, except for Chancellor Adams, who by all accounts has lived a very happy 18 years so far because of his grandmother's love and care. Until Caruth proves through action that he has changed, I'm going to, as Brenda says, metaphorically toss him on the burn pile. Burn. 
Burn. Burn torch. So my burn pile this week is Ann Coulter. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and she's a horrible person anyhow, quite honestly. I'm surprised it's taken this long for her to end up on our burn pile. It might, it might actually <laughs> yeah. speak to her real insignificance. <laughs> After Lindsay Vaughn, who we love, failed to meddle in the Super G, the right-wing fact contorter and racist trolled her. And Coulter said, well, you won't have to worry now about your visit to the White House because you won't meddle. And right-wing media site, and this refers to Lindsey Vaughn trying very elegantly, and actually, to separate herself and her trying to, I, I don't know, distance herself from the Trump administration in some elegant way and still represent U.S. people. So right-wing media sites globbed onto this and have actively celebrated Vaughn's injuries, wished upon her death and all other types of terrible things. And they've now said because of this tweet... And this happening that the Trump curse is real, that celebrities and athletes that defy Donald Trump will pay the price. And I agree that the oh my, yeah. <laughs> I actually agree the Trump curse is real. And this is where we dovetail. And we're all subject now to people who feel validated that climate change isn't and that immigrants are a bad thing and whatever racist thing they want to spew. So Lindsey Vaughn did meddle. It's a bronze medal, and it may not be what she's hoping for, but it's one more medal than Ann Coulter will ever have. So I would like to burn Ann's comments and metaphorically burn her altogether. Burn! Burn! Moving on, let's celebrate some wonderful, badass women who have accomplished things this week. Honorable mentions go to Jesse Diggins, who came from behind to win the first America's first ever gold medal in women's cross country skiing. Also, Tessa, Vir- yeah, <laughs> also Tessa Virtue, the gold medalist from Canada in pairs ice dancing. Shereen, I'd like to hear a reaction, please. I love them. <laughs> I just want to go. <laughs> Other Olympic feats include Esther Ledecka, the first athlete to win events in both alpine skiing and snowboarding at the same Olympic Winter Games. That is legend. So amazing. This week is chock full of great people. Coach Barbara Stevens of Bentley University, a longtime Division II basketball champion, well, good competitive program, became the fifth women's college coach to win a thousand career games this week. And Melissa Harville LeBron, who became the first African American woman to win uh, to own a NASCAR team. Oh, and one more thing, Marie Bjorgen for her fifteenth Winter Olympics medal in the thirty-kilometer cross-country event. I, it was really just goes to the point of Jessica that these Olympics have been a women um, amazing women's Olympics. Sorry, Jess, what? I just said fifteen. 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 <laughs> fifteen. And Ann Coulter doesn't have one. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, and but finally, Ann, Ann Coulter is the world champion many times over in absolute racist bitchiness. So that's such a big competition. <laughs> She's really fought off. She's really fought off evil people. All right, let's drum roll for the final winner. The winner goes to friend of the show, Stacy May Fowles. Yay! Yay! 
Welcome to the world, sweet Georgia. Stacy May Fowles is our friend and writer extraordinaire who can make anybody love baseball who doesn't already. And she gave the world a new human being and we're in awe and we wish the family all kinds of love and happiness. And baseball. We love you, Stacy. <laughs> I'm not keeping that one in. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. What's good? What's good? So in the dark times, that is the curse that hangs over us. Can we please talk about some things keeping us happy and upbeat? Lindsay. Yeah, it's been a good week for my coworkers. If you don't know, I work at Think Progress, which is a newsroom that primarily reports on politics, and then I'm their one sports person. So I was removed from this work. But at the beginning of the week, our investigative reporters reported on a list of companies that did business with the NRA by offering discounts to their company. So they, they looked through, I think, taxes and websites. And, you know, anyways, they did their whole investigative reporting thing and found all these companies. And, you know, they just reported on it. But then the media and our readers started to really get really mobilized from this and started calling all these companies and tweeting at these companies. And by the end of the week, more than two thirds of those companies have now split ties with the NRA. And so it's just been really exciting to see, you know, I I love my coworkers. And I'm honestly only saying this to see if any of them actually listen to this podcast, because (laughs) (laughs) this is a test. (laughs) But I will say, you know, I work with a lot of people who work really, really, really hard. And a lot of weeks, it's it can seem to me, I know that nobody's reading or paying attention or listening. So it was an exciting week to see a lot of my coworkers get the credit they deserve. And I think it was a reminder to all of us who are reporting that, you know, keep keep it up, keep going, keep going. So and also, I'm happy, honestly, that the Olympics are over so that I can get caught up on The Bachelor now in my evenings. <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> Maybe see a friend every now and then. (laughs) Okay. All your demands. Uh, Jessica? Yeah. So this week, I want to talk about Kara Swisher. She, I have a total crush on her. She's a tech reporter. She's been doing it for decades. And she's a co-founder of Recode. And she has these two podcasts that I really like, Recode Decode and Too Embarrassed to Ask. And the reason that I really love her is the way that she interviews people. It's like she has no time for people's bullshit. And so she'll be interviewing these top people in tech. And she'll be like, the product that you make is terrible for human beings' mental health. Why do you work on this terrible thing? And like, that's literally how she will ask the question and then laugh. And they like, they come on her show because she's such a big deal. And she just doesn't. I just, I just love listening to her and how much she just doesn't care about all the shit that people say, all the PR speak and all that stuff. She'll just like cut right through it. And I just love, I love listening to it and it always makes me very happy. So Kara Swisher is my what's good this week. Shereen. I am prepping to do, have a busy week ahead of me. I'm doing a talk at the Department of Justice downtown on March 1st, pre-International Women's Day stuff. So I'm excited about that. Just talking to a new audience, uh, bureaucrats, about life as a woman of color in sports media. And then I am off to the UK on Saturday, where I'll be going. Oh, wow. I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing a panel hosted, hosted, uh, moderated by Michelle Moore. And it it's by with women in football, and I'm really excited about that. It's a great organization in the UK, and they're advocates of the women's game. And uh, then I will be off to Manchester for a conference on women's football called Upfront Onside, which is sort of like this is actually how Brenda and I met, oh. and how we. So I'm sort of, and I'm sad Brenda.
friend's not going to be there. She's not able to come. But we, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm going to be presenting on moving forward towards the Women's World Cup in France and talking about politics and hijab and women's bodies. And I'm really excited about that. I haven't been to, to England in over 35 years. I have some family there. I'm going to meet some amazing friends there. My friend, uh, Sirtaj Siglikoglu, who is, she was one of the first people to encourage me in this field. And she's, uh, you know, finished her PhD at Cambridge. I'm going to meet her, one of my best friends at the LSE. I'm really excited. I intend to eat a lot. I'm going to meet my friend Rimla Akhtar, just sort of collaborate and bring all my friends to this woman in football event. So I'm really excited. A lot of really good energy. So I'm so excited about that. I'm going to miss my babies for a week, but they'll survive. <laughs> oh, I'm going to miss that conference too and all the wonderful people that are involved with it. But while you guys are doing that in Manchester, I will be off the pod and attending the Estudiantes de la Plata game in Argentina to see the women take on El Porvenir. So I'm in Argentina in part to teach a doctoral class at the Universidad Nacional, but I'm also there to do research on amateur women's soccer in the 1950s and 60s. So I will be there in spirit for sure. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate to let us know what we did and how we can improve. You can also find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down or Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. <laughs> There's a theme there. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com and check out our website www.burnitalldownpod.com where you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, and link to our Patreon. So please, once again, for those of you who have already subscribed to our Patreon, thank you so much. And those who haven't, please consider joining. It helps us to keep doing the work we love to do and burning what needs to be burned. On behalf of Jessica, Lindsay, and Shireen, have a great week. So